0: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend,
1: a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso,
0: And I'm Anne Friedman. We really wanted to take some time on the show this week and probably in the coming weeks to highlight authors who have books out who might not get to go on book tour.
1: What a perfect moment for books. Truly a time, not that everybody has more time in this moment, but certainly in moments of feeling more isolated than normal, I am always grateful to have a book at hand. And so there is, there is sort of a dual benefit of like, yes, being able to highlight great work by great authors who are maybe not getting all the opportunities they otherwise would in this moment. And also talking about some things that we are reading as we um, hole up in our homes.
0: Right. And I think also just thinking about the, you know, the win-win of this moment is that we get to read books by authors that we love. We want to highlight them so that their books get bought, but also we want to highlight our um, indie bookstores that need our help right now. And so I think that there is truly a win-win-win all around here. um, If everyone plays their part and I have been really, 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 really lucky that my, local bookstore is still shipping books and so it's nice you know so I would encourage everyone to really look at the indie near them or choose an indie in the country that you want to support and that's where you should be buying your books from right now
1: yeah, one thing that I have been doing is sending a couple extra books to my friends with kids from an indie bookstore that is close to them to spread it around a little. Because I'm like, who needs who needs more entertainment options right now? The answer is children and people taking care of them. So that's one thing that I have been doing. I have also been really, uh, I mean, I'm always a fan of the Libby app, which is the public library yes. sort of digital access point. But um, I also just want to shout out to that because if you do not have the means to be buying a bunch of new books in this moment, it is also a good time to request things digitally, to get yourself in the queue for things you want to read and to really take advantage of like how great libraries really are at offering audiobooks and digital books. Oh,
0: I love it. I really hate this moment, but I really um, I am really deeply appreciative of the reading community. Absolutely. Speaking of which, who did you talk to this week? Oh and I talked to <laughs> Bess Calb, who is truly, truly, truly by far one of my favorite human beings on Twitter. All of her jokes are LOL, funny, she is really smart and someone who always brings me a lot of joy. So when her book landed on um, on my bedside table, I was very excited to read it. It's called Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. Bess is an Emmy-nominated writer for Jimmy Kimmel Live. She, you know, like is, if you read her tweets, like you can already tell she's a very good writer. She's really funny. But this book, it is like truly and one of the best things I've read in the past, I would say, year. Bess writes about, basically writes about her relationship with her grandmother. I don't read a lot about, you know, like grandmother, granddaughter narratives, so I appreciated that. And also, you will love this because we um, write a book that try to tackle this. So the book is um, written in the voice of her grandmother speaking to her. And so it's a true as told to best story. And the mechanics of it all are so fascinating to me. I think it's really well done. The story itself is... Both like laugh out loud funny in moments and so, 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 so deeply sweet and tender in others. It'll really make you want to call your grandma.
2: My name is Bess Kalb and my book is Nobody Will Tell You This But Me.
0: Hi, Bess Kalb. Hello. How are you doing over there?
2: I am thriving in um, end times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, <guess>. I shouldn't <laughs> laugh, but we sh- we have to laugh so we don't cry. I don't
2: totally. That's all. That's that's honestly. It's my it's my motto. It's my profession, and it's now my um survival uh skill. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's so hard to get over the default. Like I'm good. How are you? Um, and uh, it, it took this to break that in Americans. <laughs> <I think.
0: laughs> this being coronavirus. This, yeah, uh, it
2: took a little <laughs> pandemic.
0: <laughs> in case you live on another planet and you're listening to this show, um, that's what we're dealing with
2: on this planet. Yeah. And do you have room or a way to get there? Would you go
0: somewhere else if they huh. when they start doing like space tourism? I personally will not go. I'm like I am happy to stay here. I'm happy for someone else to do the exploring.
2: I have no desire to go to space. I would be happy to live in the sort of like Wally trash planet um <laughs> <laughs> that's me yeah. i'm like i know it here right. i know it here, right. so fine right. here i find my little green shrub and I, i'd like i'd hang out and watch hello dolly it would be fine <laughs>
0: <laughs> well listen i was super excited to talk to you because your book is very good Bess.
2: oh man i mean a thank you for saying that
0: you know so much of it is about your relationship with your grandmother who was like an iconic human being I think that is really (laughs) that's really (laughs) understanding it you know I think the reason that it struck me so much is that I think that in my own experience of reading about a lot of kinds about a lot of different kinds of love stories and different ways that women can relate to each other I don't remember the last time that I had read anything that was about someone talking about their relationship with their grandmother.
2: Yeah, I I found I didn't realize that there would be something radical about just talking about a regular woman and um, and the way that she helped raise women. It feels like the literature, especially of like this kind of like Jewish milieu is like Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, these men who made their mundane realities literature. But Jewish women kind of aren't allowed in that canon and it's not like worthy of the same kind of like paper and space. So I felt like this is just my life. This is the woman who helped raise me and I wanted to like commit her to the page as if she mattered. And it's really nice to hear that she mattered to you.
0: You make like a really interesting choice, like writing in the voice of your grandmother. And so I'm just like curious if you could talk more about um, deciding to do that. Also just the, how does that feel to write in the voice of someone that you know so much?
2: I actually started writing in the voice of my grandma three days after she died in 2017 when yeah. I um, was tasked with delivering her eulogy at her funeral and I like I, I started and scrapped, four or five different drafts that seem kind of highfalutin or trite or cliched in talking about death and in talking about the departure of a loved one, I, I find that like language suddenly becomes very formal and very rote, and there was no way to really express how I was feeling about her. So at two in the morning the night before her funeral, I just started writing as her, Like what she would say at her funeral, joking about how Jewish everyone was all of a sudden. And she would look at what we're wearing and she would not approve of what I was wearing. And the whole, (laughs) um, the whole life that had just, disappeared off the face of the earth was all of a sudden very present again and so for me writing in her voice was both a way to communicate her story accurately and also an exercise in reconnection with someone who I had lost so it was this therapeutic experience to write and I'm so glad that it's becoming a therapeutic experience for people to read it's now just sort of literary group therapy and that's and it's it's cheaper than real therapy
0: we don't have very good conversations about grief mm-hmm. in general. You know, it's a, uh, when someone dies, you're supposed to like go hide away. And then when society is ready for you, like everyone will pretend that nothing happened, yeah. that you're not in pain. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the fact that you write in just this like really clear eyed voice and, you know, it's funny and it's sad. And as much as you are really shining a light on the kinds of relationships that women have with each other, there is also something about the fact that um, young people are not good about talking about their grief. And this is a really good entry point into that conversation.
2: Well, thank you. And also, I didn't have the tools to express how I was feeling at the time. In fact, like, the moment that I find out that I lost um, one of the loves of my life, my grandma um, is, is in the book. Um, It came after I was um, paddle boarding, um, uh outside of an Airbnb and um and I I have Am- amazing <laughs> sentence <laughs> which is like which is just the most dipshit millennial activity to do. And I'm also not like an athlete. I, I was not paddleboarding well. It wasn't like I was I was sort of like Hawaiian surfer. I'm just like an ungainly Jew wearing a SPF fifty turtleneck and the sun. And it was just the sort of like indignity of a of a situation. And uh and then Hearing that my grandmother had died hours before I was doing that and then picturing myself doing that while my grandmother was dead not knowing. It just made me feel as idiotic as as I looked. I remember one of my first reactions was to text one of my best friends and uh, my former writing buddy at at Kimmel. Um, I I texted my friend Jeff Loveness, my grandma died. Uh, And he knew how close we were. He had actually been on speakerphone when she would call and I was at work and I would start laughing and then he would would make a motion. I would put her on speakerphone because nobody would believe what she would say until they actually heard her. And I just saw his like three dots appear and disappear a few times uh, like in the phone. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh God, I feel so bad for him because I just put this – on him, and there's no way to like whatever he's gonna say, I already forgive. And of course, he's an amazing human, so he actually had this like beautiful, empathetic. And I remember feeling bad for him, knowing how difficult it would be because I just put death on the table and it's sort of the silencer. And in writing the book, it took me like 200 something pages to say how it feels to lose someone because I think like it doesn't have a, a script and it doesn't have a – there's no rubric for like dealing with the bereaved. I think in taking you along the story of my life with my grandma, as a reader, you will understand how it feels for me to have lost her. It's like in order to really understand the loss, you have to understand exactly what somebody meant to the person who lost. And so that's what this book does. Mm-hmm. what were the easiest parts to write and what were the hardest parts to write um, well I'm a comedy writer by trade and um, and I write jokes every day so writing the like funny parts writing the the dialogue was definitely the easiest part for me because it's at this point it's second nature and it's like my my well sharpened tool and it's also very easy to write for a character that that you know really well that i can almost plug and play my grandma into any situation and i could know how she would react there's it's like a, i feel sometimes like an ai bot like i have the full algorithm of my grandma in my head like an, i've like listened to enough <laughs> of her that i could like churn out her reaction to something that she never experienced and so that ended up being i wouldn't say easy but definitely like the second nature part um, and then the part that I resisted and even, like, told my editor at the beginning, I was like, maybe this could just be a funny book of, like, lots of dialogue and voicemails, right? And she was like, no, you have to dig deeper. And I think the hardest part for me was writing the last section of the book um, after me because it imagined my grandma's voice knowing she was dead. And so it's uh, it was her grappling with her own loss while talking to me about it, while joking throughout. And so it was like it took a lot of dissociation and like projecting in a way that would leave me feeling kind of rattled at the end of a writing day. But even though it was hard emotional work, I think I'm glad I did it because it made for a better book and it also made me cope better with my own grief.
0: I don't know. I'm just getting really emotional (laughs) because I think you wrote a really lovely love story.
2: Before we go, what else are you reading right now? Oh man, I had to really change my, uh, my tune with, with books uh, about four days ago when uh, um, the world ended. Um, right? So,
0: you are not reading Severin? <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm not. No. <laughs> um,
0: I- An amazing book, but very apocalyptic, right? Yeah.
2: Now. <laughs> I am working my way through topics of conversation, which I love. I think that's a really ingenious narrative tool to use to write. I read three books at once depending on what I'm (laughs) feeling. There's usually like a nonfiction in rotation, a a novel, and a pilot light slow burn of Elena Ferrante. There's always like a My Brilliant Friend for when I need to fall asleep. That's my melatonin and Xanax now that I'm breastfeeding and can't really take either of those. And... I just got Gary Janetti's book, which I, I love. I think he's very funny. The book, Do you mind if I Cancel? I have that
0: on a reading pile somewhere, but I um on your recommendation, I will move it to the top of the pile.
2: Yeah, it's pretty funny. He's definitely as funny as he is on Instagram. <laughs> As a as a writer, funny writing is
0: really hard. Yeah, you can always tell if the person is trying too hard. Yes, which is always my fear with people who say that they're comedians. I'm always like, oh no, oh no, what is this going to do? And um, and then some people like you just do it. And so I was like, maybe one day you can teach that secret sauce. I don't know. Like, I'm the secret? I'm
2: a fraud. I'm writing in the voice of a character, so it's like I think it's much harder for someone. Like the greats, like David Sedaris, who just be funny as himself and in his own voice. Like I hide behind a man character, Jimmy Kimmel, when I'm writing jokes for TV, and I hide behind my grandma when I'm writing jokes for books. So I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if I can actually be a funny writer. If they're just like you're best Kalb here's a microphone, go.
0: I have full confidence in you, but now I'm like convinced that maybe David Sedaris is just writing a character that's David Sedaris. I hope
2: so. Wow. It'll make me feel a lot better. <laughs>
0: Well, David Sedaris is a lovely human. You are a lovely human. Thank you for writing a great book. And, you know, I know that it feels like the apocalypse right now, but I think that your book is actually very of right now because I'm trying to focus on people Mm. instead of focusing on issues. Mm. And so I think that for that alone, something that really just helps you to like mine your feelings about relationships in your life Mm. is uh we probably
2: need that during uh coronavirus time so thanks yeah if nothing else i hope this encourages people to call their grandma
0: Well, my good grandma is dead and my bad grandma is still alive. And when I finished reading your book, I was like, Should I call the bad grandma? And then she did and then she did a bad thing and I was like, No, "No, I feel very affirmed in not
2: calling the bad grandma. It doesn't have to be as literal as that. Just like examine the connections between the people you love.
0: Totally. Bess, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of the week. And uh, where can we find your work?
2: Oh, you can find my book wherever books were sold <laughs> on IndieBound is where I suggest you buy it, support local bookstores, keep their lights on. This is a really tough time for them. On my website, bestcalb.com, you can see everywhere to buy the book as well as various online presences that I have. And I just have to give a plug to your Twitter account.
0: Um... <laughs> At Best Bell because it keeps me sane every day. So thanks
2: for your tweets, and it makes me insane to do.
1: So, there you go. <laughs> 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 oh, AmiNatu, best grandmothers everywhere.
0: Yes, I know. Shout out to my good grandma. Not a shout out to my bad grandma.
1: Wow i I am gonna go call Grandma Jules immediately. Thank you for this reminder and prompt. And yeah, I cannot wait to read this book. Love an ambitious narrative voice. Let's take a break, Anne.
0: Okay, we're back from break. Who did you talk to?
1: I had a lovely conversation with the journalist, essayist, writer, Jordan Kisner, who has an essay collection out now called Thin Places, Essays From, In Between. And I had read some of her work in various magazines before picking up this book, but there are a lot of themes uniting the essays in this book. Many of them are about religion and spirituality. They are about being in a collective society and what that means. And a lot of them are about like how we search for and make meaning with other humans. And maybe this is sort of my more analytical brain. I really like the idea of a big abstract concept that is then boiled down into these really specific stories. So these essays are about like raves for Jesus, but also about like a naturally occurring forest phenomenon in Utah and (laughs) being able to unite really distinct subjects with this kind of like underlying perspective about what it all means is i think one of one of the hallmarks of a great essay and so i really enjoyed this collection it was also great um for me in this moment because it was something i could kind of pick up and put down and i like having something in my reading rotation i don't know if you're like this where like it's either short stories or things that feel like it's not one unbroken narrative right like i can kind of dip in and dip out oh i need that at all times at all times
3: Yeah, so here's Jordan talking about her essay collection. My name is Jordan Kistner, and I'm a writer of essays and magazine features, and most recently, uh, a book, a collection of essays called Thin Places, and my pronouns are she, her. Jordan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you.
1: So... Maybe an obvious number one question, but um, what is A Thin Place? And why is this the idea that you chose to unite all the essays in this collection?
3: A Thin Place is borrowed from a piece of Celtic mythology. I heard about it in an interview on a different podcast, the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. There is an aphorism in Celtic mythology that says that the division between this world and the next world is never more than three feet, but that in the thin places, it's even closer than that. And the veil can can sort of drop between what we feel to be the world we know and the next world or the imagined world or the holy world, depending on what kind of descriptors or adjectives you want to use for it. And I was very taken with this metaphor at the time. It's full of wonder and awe, maybe. There's an experience of wonder and awe, but also it can be very frightening you know when people write in old stories about encounters with angels they're terrifying right like often when the next the next world or something we two worlds that we think of as very separate merge it can be amazing but it can be very frightening and i think that in the time that i was starting to work on this book i was having this experience of feeling like there were a lot of things about myself and my life that i had thought were true that were no longer true or things that i felt like i had been able to place total faith in that had then come apart, and so I felt unmoored and a little terrified and a little awed by how quickly all that seemed to be happening. I started looking around for other people who seemed to have experienced also the disruption of an intrusion of a kind of loss of faith or a new world that was being visited upon them. You had said that like when
1: you learned this term, it sort of connected a couple of different things that you were already working on or had already written. And I'm wondering about how you then move forward to find other things that evoked this feeling in you or that fit the theme.
3: I was looking around and seeing that all over this country, there are models of people who are coping with the intrusion of some new reality onto a framework that they had thought was absolute. So for example, I heard about these Mormon women in Utah who were so upset by the Trump election that it led them to completely reassess their own relationship to what they thought their faith and their church was asking them to do politically. And they decided to sort of form this group that was gonna very politely overthrow the Utah state government. and. I saw elsewhere in California, which is where I'm from, this town that had originally been a scene, you know, where, where movies had shot in like old Hollywood, the Wild West. It's like the, the valley that we think of when we imagine the Wild West has now been completely desiccated because the water was rerouted from a once very verdant valley to Los Angeles and now it's the big, one of the biggest dust bowls in the world and yet the people there persist in living in this new reality. And so I just started looking around for stories like that where people were kind of having to confront some evaporation of a solid truth that they thought was there. And it turns out that in the United States right now, there's a lot of that because we're in a time of political and social upheaval. And so there are a lot of people who are having to really re-examine their what you might call secular faith systems, the things they really, really believed were true.
1: Uh, I feel like this is sort of the perfect moment for us to talk about your essay about obsession and about obsessive-compulsive disorder and the ideas that you raise in that essay about whether there are actually boundaries between ourselves and others. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how your own experiences with obsession kind of led you to this essay and where you went from there.
3: Sure, of course. This was one of the first essays I worked on in this collection. And I had just, I, there was something about it that I needed to get out on paper and I couldn't figure out what it was. And so it took me a long time to write it. I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder when I was, I think, a young teenager, maybe 14 or 15, and the way that I experienced it at the time, and still occasionally experience it when it's troubling me, is that I felt like I was having these thoughts pop into my head that were very frightening and and upsetting to me. And they didn't totally feel like my thoughts. It felt like someone you know, dropped a thought bubble in that was from somewhere else in the ether. And I would think, oh, geez, gosh, where did that thought come from and it was very frightening and so one of the reasons that it turned into obsessive compulsive disorder was that I then sort of developed these ideas of okay well if I can rationally talk myself out if I can prove that that thought isn't mine and I don't really think it and it's not true then then it'll be okay and so I would develop these sort of patterns of having to rationalize my way around this experience of having some kind of intrusive thought that didn't feel like mine. And so in this essay, I research the history of obsession and obsessive compulsive disorder and then more precisely try to examine what we talk about when we talk about like our mind or our thoughts. What does it mean when there's a a disorder or a disease that can make you feel like there are thoughts in your head that aren't yours? And there are actually a number of mental illnesses that are characterized by some experience like that. And I just it it got me really, really fascinated about the way that we, as a society, try to draw distinctions between, you know what's you and what's not you and what's inside you and what's outside you. And where do you and your mind and your body start and stop? And I wound up getting to read a lot of really, really interesting books and thinkers on that. So, for example, I read Eullabis's book on immunity which is a brilliant book that she wrote when she was trying to navigate the debates about whether or not to vaccinate children when her uh, when she had a young child. And she talks a lot about herd immunity and the fact that it's often a... It's a little bit of an illusion that we have, that our, that our bodies are sort of closed systems. And I wanted to think about the way that sometimes our, our minds actually, we want them to be closed systems, but they don't always feel like closed systems. And, and sometimes that can manifest as you know an obsessive compulsive disorder experience, and sometimes it can just manifest as mirror neurons or falling in love with someone or that we are much more porous creatures than, than we are comfortable thinking we are.
1: Right. And then by the same token, there is this very strong desire to feel that we are porous creatures, right? I mean, we're in this moment of like intense physical separation from people. And it has been really fascinating to me to watch um, pretty much everyone I know and care about try to very concertedly assert the fact that, yes, we are physically separate, but we are extremely connected mentally and emotionally.
3: Yeah, this is a really interesting time to be... I'm rereading Eulabus's book right now. And it's a really interesting time to be reconsidering how we conceive of ourselves as singular organisms and then as singular organisms that are part of a larger organism. And right now, of course, because of this horrible COVID-19 and coronavirus outbreak, we're seeing in a really dark way the way that we are not... Uh, that we are all very much part of a large connected organism physically and like you're saying i too like i'm getting i'm more i'm having more phone calls with people i love and facetiming more with people i love than i ever do on a normal week and so it's interesting to see the way that humanity tries to kind of comp- compensate by upregulating the good and nourishing spiritual emotional ways in which we're all connected uh, while we're also trying to combat and mitigate the sometimes damaging ways that we're all interconnected in these sort of physical immune related ways.
1: Right. And in fact, you know, you have an essay later in the book about um one of the ways this there's sort of a, I hesitate to call the natural world a metaphor for this, but the way this plays out in sort of the biological natural world as well in this um, forest in, is it Utah? Is that right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So maybe you could talk a bit about that.
3: Yeah. I, this was another example of kind of looking around in the world and, and seeing a pattern, seeing like a concept that I had been mulling on and, finding it manifested in some really physical way. So there is this tree, the the largest living organism is a is a tree that is it's it's a stand of aspens. So it's one tree but also thousands and thousands of trees, which is a kind of a stand meaning nice. like a
1: grove, sorry.
3: <laughs> yes, so a stand of aspens means that they are all a single organism but it looks like a forest. So aspens are are this particular kind of aspen, a quaking aspen, they're um, all over North America and all over the world. And one thing that's fascinating about them is that they share their roots. They have one connected root system that then manifests as, a, you know, thousands and thousands of trees. So you look; it looks and feels like you're walking through a forest of many, many different trees. But in fact, it's all one living thing. And what is useful about that to the organism is that one corner of the forest can burn down and the, the, the resources uh, of the tree will then be sent to making a whole bunch of new outcroppings, new outgrowths elsewhere on the other side that's not damaged. Um, and it's just an example of the way that this tension between The singular and the whole, between the individual and the whole, is not just a human thing. It's something we see mirrored in nature, um, all over the place. And I just, I just kind of fell in love with this tree. Its name is Pando. It's called Pando, (laughs) and it's um, incredibly old. It's like the very. It's it's theoretically immortal. That's one of the other things I thought was really cool. Is that because of the way that it functions? Because it is this gigantic collection of individual of individuals forming one large individual it can in theory live forever because it can just keep sending up new trees and new trees and new trees um, as as others die off.
1: It's interesting that that seems not dissimilar from some of the language used by this kind of like new wave of like hip evangelical Christians that you also write about. It feels very evocative for me even of my pretty traditionalist Catholic upbringing of like we're all one body or like we're all connected through God.
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the thing you might be referencing is that one of these churches I write about An evangelical church that was founded in New York, and they were, as is often the model, uh, starting what they call planting. Actually, they use you know tree and agriculture metaphors. They were planting other churches, which is to say, opening other you know smaller outposts of the same church all over the city and all over the world. And the idea was that every one of them would have the same quote DNA, but kind of manifest in some new local context appropriate to its environment. I don't know. I think that's a really common way that humans like to organize by recognizing that there can be some kind of overarching order or connection while also admitting individuality. I think that's a very comforting idea. And so you, you see it manifest all over the place if you start looking for it.
1: Right. And I think that's also at the heart of, you know, just overall, some of the appeal of religion. I I don't know, as you write it anyway, your personal, the way you've been personally drawn, like moments when I am attracted to the idea of there being a God, or when I feel closest to like a concept that many people describe as God, it's because of this moment of connection. I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. um, So one of the experiences that drove this book was that when I was a kid, I was Kind of accidentally sent to Bible camp. My parents were not religious. I was not raised in a religious household, but they sent me to camp, not quite understanding that it was Bible camp, and I was converted at Bible camp and came home a born-again Christian, much to their surprise. And um, it just made so much sense to me at the time, as a vocab, you know, the the, the vocabulary that Christianity as it was articulated to me then, offered just made so much sense as a way of organizing and understanding what to me seemed like the obvious luminosity of the world. I think I write in the book, I just was naturally reverent, and so I was very ready to be handed a a set of ideas and words and language to frame that. Um, And then I became, I just fell out of it as a teenager because I realized, I, I decided to read the Bible and i realized that a lot of what the teachings were didn't didn't really work for me i didn't really believe in it and the kind of coming into faith and then coming back out of faith was frightening and upsetting at the time i didn't like having having the experience of losing a way of understanding the world it was the first big time that that happened to me at like maybe 14 and that experience of having your world kind of changed by a new new way of understanding it and then having that understanding fall apart, again, felt like something that I, as I got older, saw repeat and repeat and repeat. And I looked around and saw that happen to people who were religious and people who weren't religious. So, you know, that's there are a lot of ways in which, you know, sometimes, for example, the experience of being a healthy person who then becomes incredibly ill. You know, Sontag talks about us all having dual passports in the land of the the sick and the well and that can feel like a way of knowing the world that then falls apart for you something that I am interested in and noticed while I was writing this book is that people become very drawn in religion or in, in other ways in other avenues to organizing principles and particularly organizing principles that as you're saying help you understand where you fit in relation to other people in humanity and some kind of sense of greater whole. And sometimes that's CrossFit and sometimes that's cleanses and goop and sometimes that's church and and sometimes that's politics. And I think that's really fertile ground for, for writers and artists to look at where people are investing that that need and energy in finding community and, and figuring out where they belong.
1: Jordan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So,
3: so good to talk to you.
0: Ah, Jordan Kistner. That was amazing. I am really excited to yeah. read this
3: book.
1: But one last plug for your local indie or library because, you know, I want them to have these books and I want us all to have these resources far into the future.
0: Well, here is what I picked up from um, the bookstore recently or got delivered Ooh, tell from the me. bookstore recently. I reread, wow, no thank you, Sam Irby's book of essays. I have to say it really has made the pandemic go by faster. So I cannot recommend it enough. And Sam will be on CYG very soon. And I also finished reading, but then went to listen to, and I'm really like annoyed at myself that I didn't think about just listening to it first, but the read was also incredible. Cameron Esposito's memoir, Save Yourself which is truly, truly lovely. You know, Cameron just has a knack for a lot of really powerful self-reflection and thinking about all of the systems that you live within and, and really analyzing your place in the world. And so I just really appreciated that.
1: I'm reading two things, Uh, one work of nonfiction, one work of fiction. The nonfiction book is called Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary, which is by Sasha Geffen. It's all about the ways that people of different sexual identities and gender expressions have really change the way we listen to music and the music that is like mainstream and popular. And I love like, a, again, like as a dip in, dip out, like a music history book is A++ because it is also changing what I listen to. I'm like going back to music that I was sort of familiar with and like hearing it in a new way um, thanks to this book. So I love that. And the fiction I'm reading is a YA novel called Look by pal of the podcast, Zan Romanoff. And I have to say it is sort of in the style of Mary H.K. Choi's Emergency Contact. It's centered on digital communication or like the experience of how do you portray yourself and see others on the Internet through this like really very sweet and relatable story. And I'm just like, there is something so comforting to me about reading YA or like reading a really immersive YA novel in this moment as well. I'm just like, I'm really, at the end of my workday, just relaxing into a couple chapters of it feels incredible. So two strong wrecks for you. That are like out right now, authors that could definitely use your support. I love that, and
0: I love that you're a reader, Anne. I will.
1: See- oh my gosh, I love you're a reader. Sorry. Just <laughs> <laughs> like stop. I love that I'm like taking this like the biggest compliment ever. Like I, oh, we thank you for a, calling me a reader. <laughs> we are nerds. Um,
0: I'll see you on the internet, boo boo. See you on the internet. you can find us many places on the internet callyourgirlfriend.com apple podcast spotify stitcher we're on all your favorite platforms subscribe rate review you know the drill you can call us back you can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943 714-681-cygf you can email us yrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by robin original music composed by carolyn penny pepper rings we're on instagram and twitter at callyrgf. yrgf our associate producer is jordan bailey and this podcast is produced by gina